This is an ABC podcast. As a little fella, I remember Nana and Mum telling me the story, and I just got to say it as they said it how the blacks were driven off the cliffs at Elliston for murdering Hamp out Lake Newlam. We grew up with exactly that, that you know, a lot of our people were, were pushed over the cliffs. It's, it's, as we know, Aboriginal history is, a, is an oral history, it's, it's not written. heard multiple versions, I guess depending on who you talk to, there's just the way a story goes after 170 odd years. On the 27th of May, 1849, in the very early days of settlement, on the remote west coast of South Australia, a disturbing incident occurred. Something so dark that the story has bubbled persistently below the surface for six to seven generations. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley, and today on The History Listen, we go to the small farming and surfing town of Elliston, where the decision to build a monument commemorating that incident has caused anger and division in the community and attracted a flurry of worldwide media attention, including from The New York Times. It's a story that tests modern Australia's willingness to confront its history, but also asks how much can we ever really know about what did happen. The massacre memorial at Waterloo Bay has brought history very much back to life. We join producer Annie Hastwell on a clifftop with Wirringu elder Jack Johncock. So we're wandering up the cliffs now and we're gonna go off air for a little while while we walk up into this into the cyclonic weather and go up to the side itself. There's a raging gale blowing today at Waterloo Bay. We're looking down at spectacular jagged limestone cliffs that plummet towards an angry ocean. These days, this place is a fearless surfer's dream, but a long time ago, something unspeakable happened here. You'll see it's not a sheer drop off, it actually sort of a bit of a ledge there also, but as people were forced to get over it, a lot of them were still sort of on the lip of the cliff and on the edges. And so those people were shot till they rolled down into the sea. So is this what we're looking at now, right down? So we're at the side here. Oh. And it's pretty dramatic, as you can see. Those that tried to save themselves by holding onto boulders and stuff were just shot and just rolled into the ocean. A little way away, two raw-cut dark granite monoliths stand sentinel on the cliffs. A smaller headstone between them tells the story. We didn't want to put these at the actual um, massacre site due to the fact we didn't want people tramping all over the cliffs where the spirits are and as I read through it you'll hear that the word massacre comes up um, and that's that's what caused a lot of the controversy. This monument commemorates an incident referred to by the traditional owners of this land as the Massacre of Waterloo Bay. The number 
of Aboriginal people were killed near the site in May 1849. I said to Jack and the others, I said, look, we all know it happened, but if you have the word massacre up there, it could cause a bit of a blow. When federal money for a walking trail along the cliffs at Elliston came with the condition that traditional owners be recognised, former Mayor Kim Callaghan encouraged his council to support the Wirungu to do what they'd wanted to do since the 70s, erect a monument to commemorate the incident that had resonated in local history for over a century and a half. But when it came to what to write on the monument, the argument started. And what followed divided the town. Here's how just one local responded when the decision was made to include the word massacre. I think massacre is far too derogative word for the Elliston community to accept. I think incident, it's always been described as the Elliston incident, and I think that's a far better description of, of what happened because it's not really known how many people died or what the incident actually did, but we do recognise something happened. A woman came out, jumped the gun with a petition, saying you can't put the word massacre, and Jack turned around and said, right, game's off. The word either goes up or nothing goes up. It was a pretty tough time, but it brought a lot of the people out, a lot of them. We've got a really strong art surfing culture here fishing as well as farming it actually divided a lot of families because there was grandparents wouldn't talk to their grandchildren i know that for a fact it's polarized some families but overall it's polarized the community elliston is a little far-flung pocket of civilization sandy and spread out from a long jetty There's a post office, a pub, a bakery, council chambers, all set comfortably apart on wide streets, but inside of each other. Everyone I meet seems to know where everyone else is. It's a landscape they all share, and there's a comfortable, quiet laziness in the air. Hard to believe how poisonous the debate was that raged here. It's definitely been challenging for a few people, and there's probably a few of us who have said stuff that's not particularly tactful in the heat of the moment. Ian Dudley teaches at the local high school. He and his partner Jay Gregory live with their three small girls in a house nestled in sand hills above the jetty. Before any words were even finalised, there was a petition against it. So that's why it's become such a story, I think, is the divide within the town that just took off without anyone even knowing what, what the original words were. There was already stories and false information going around so I think that's what's turned it into such a huge issue. People were worried about how to make the town look, people were worried maybe about or for some families it is about their ancestors and the fact that they did have relatives here at the time. It's interesting when you talk to people how many people still include native title and misunderstandings about native title and those uh, mid-90s era fears about having their houses and their swimming pools taken. Some families find, and we still get on quite well with these families, that had ancestors actually involved. But some of the other people who aren't even locals from that far back, I can't understand why they are that passionately opposed to a minority group getting their perspectives, their memorial, their ancestors to be put to rest. Why is that such an issue? 
considering it's not smack bang in town either. It's it's off the beaten track, it's up on the cliffs, they don't have to visit it. I just don't understand. Have you lost friends over this? Well, not as far as I know. I've probably made a few more. Um, You're being way too generous. It's been hell. It's a horrible thing to be a part of. In November 2018, the previous Elliston Council was overturned, according to many people I spoke to, over the issue of the monument and that word. I'm Malcolm Hancock, the newly appointed Mayor of Elliston District Council. While Malcolm Hancock doesn't believe that issue decided the votes, he admits the word massacre still rankles with many locals. People don't like the word massacre for, for several reasons. One is that they uh, don't believe that the, the significant number of deaths warrants the word massacre. Um, and uh, we've explored the word massacre and it's anywhere between five and hundreds of people. My personal uh, interpretation of massacre is a, a huge number of people, but we're never ever going to know the number of people that were killed. There's been plenty of fables and legends and stories that uh, have been embellished to say there were hundreds, but uh, I really don't believe that that was the case. The dramatic clifftop incident was said to have been triggered by an equally dramatic murder by Aboriginal people of a man called John Hamp. The details of that story are murky and have been made murkier by fictionally embellished versions that have come out over the years. We do know that Hamp was a hut keeper on Stony Point Station, near Lake Newland, 30 kilometres north of where Elliston now stands. In June 1848, Hamp was found lying dead, face down between his hut and scrub where he had apparently been heading to cut fuel. Local historian Margaret Tilsoner. The skull was sawn nearly through and a saw was found in the hut with blood and hair, grey hairs, because um, he was a grey-haired man and brain matter in it. So they were the facts and they were verified more than once. It was a gruesome murder. But although legend has connected it directly to the Waterloo Bay incident, that apparently didn't happen until almost a year later. During that year, two more white settlers, one a young mother, were killed, and an Aboriginal family was poisoned by arsenic-laced flour. Black-white relationships were at a flashpoint when in May 1849, a robbery prompted station owner Thomas Horne and his men to chase a group of Aboriginal people towards the cliffs at Waterloo Bay. He and a couple of men with him got to the edge of the cliff, the Aborigines there. A couple of others had climbed down the cliff, so he climbed down the cliff. That's not unusual, and it wasn't unusual for the Aborigines. They were very familiar with those cliffs because it was a, a source of food supply. They gathered the eggs that the birds, bird nesting birds there, and there were quite deep caves in there and, and one spear was thrown from the cliff just missing him and he noticed that in, the, in a cave at the cliff there were a couple of others. The long and short of it is two people were killed, two Aboriginals were killed. One was a woman and the body of another falling into the sea. Margaret Tilsoner questions the more dramatic, large-scale massacre story. I'm not happy with the story because things just don't add up. The logistics of, of rounding up 
so many horsemen and so many Aboriginals within a day or so for the magnitude of such an event just doesn't sit well with my reckoning. How do you account for the Aboriginal oral histories that have obviously been passed down since that time? Have you heard the term, I'm sure you will, of Chinese whispers? Hmm. Yes. History flutters down through the years in many forms, and the search for clues makes historians detectives. High on a hill, overlooking the bay west of Port Lincoln, I find Gil Robertson. With the so-called Elliston Massacre, there's probably more misinformation about that than almost any other event in Australian history. Gil works in a tiny shack crammed with overflowing boxes telling of a lifetime of local research. By my count, there is approximately 73 times on Air Peninsula in the far west where blood was lost between Europeans and Aboriginals. And uh, some of those are uh, a single person, but most of them involved a payback. I've talked to the old families I've read what still exists for the police, which is very little, because they didn't want to record it. And I've been, in the early 80s, right out uh, on the Nullarbor, talking to the very senior men of the South Pitananjara who were moved down to Tullawan, uh, Yalata, for the atomic bomb tests. And they were mixed up with the Murning who are the uh, uh, Nullarbor people, and... So they've got connection to the massacres? They hold the stories. And those stories offer a different reason why John Hamp was murdered. Payback for his treatment of Aboriginal girls. They told me he had been warned and he offended again, and that's why what happened to him happened. And... He had his head severed and he also had his skull partly sawn through with a handsaw that was in the, in the hut. And what's not said in the white record is what happened down below to the wedding tackle. But there was a horrific reaction to this which makes me think he was castrated because the overreaction was like hadn't been seen up to then. There was only about 15 white miles in the area, in the district, and um, either 11 or 12 of them rode out to punish. Gill uses Google Earth to trace the story. They rounded up a group of Aboriginals near Lake Newland and pushed them across the lake and they took off down the coast here. 
you see here's Watergrove Island, this is Anxious Bay there, this is Waterloo Bay there, and the people over the edge of the cliff were about there. According to Gill, one small boy lived to tell the story. There was one Aboriginal lad who couldn't keep up. Somewhere here in the tea tree country, the mother told the kid to hide there until she came back for him. And it got dark and he stayed up there and it got light again. His mother never returned and the boy made his way back inland. You see that lake there? Between that lake and Lake Newland, there's several Aboriginal worlds. So that's a pathway that they can cross any time of the year. And this kid made his way here, found relatives, grew up. In the 1980s, Gill met someone who told him that story. And a bloke who at that stage was mid-upper 60s, a man called Spencer Peel, was the grandson of that child. I got that part of the story from Spencer. This account has a massacre happening directly after the Hamp murder, so could there have been more than one massacre around Elliston? There were definitely two. There was probably three, because when you look at the names of people who are credited as being involved, and these are the white people, there were a different group of people, but many the same, in the... 1848 and 1849 but there's another one that several names come up but one of those names was only in the area in uh, 1856 and the rest of the story has the same basics pursuit cliff edge killings so I would suggest it's highly likely there are actually three so-called Elliston massacres that are all confused. My name is Vida Betts. I'm a Wengal elder from the far west coast. And how far does this story of Elliston go back for you? Oh, many years ago. As my grandmother used to make a, a campfire just beyond the back of our house, and at night she'd make the campfire and we'd sit around it and all these stories would come up, including the one of Alliston. Vitabet's grandma would tell the story of an old woman called Annie Wombat, who as a child had survived the massacre. How she survived over the cliff and the farm, all the farmers around there looked after her, took her in. In the lead-up to the decision about the monument, the local battle continued, about what did happen at Waterloo Bay and whether it could be called a massacre. The council decided to call on anthropologist Dr Tim Haynes to look at the evidence. What I found was you can't necessarily rely on police journals at the time because, of course, they had their own agendas. So 
The difficulty, the minefield, I suppose, that you have to negotiate here concerns not just the individuals themselves, but what's been written, which is not necessarily the truth. You've got to weed it out from, um, from what's written down. And that's what makes this a rather challenging exercise. So what do you think happened? I concluded that people were pushed over the cliff, that some people were shot. I think it's more than likely that there were perhaps 20 people, um, perhaps a little more than that, actually killed in, in that event, in the massacre. There, there probably weren't as many as is claimed by the indigenous side, 200 or so. Um, I think that's unlikely because I don't think there would have been that many people, many Aboriginal people resident uh, in that area at the time. But Tim Haynes says historians shouldn't dismiss Aboriginal oral histories. The interesting thing about Aboriginal oral histories is they're repeated over and over again until they're established as they were in the generation previously. So they're passed down, if you like, immutably from generation to generation. This goes for their law, uh, their customs and their histories. So, in fact, it's far more likely that there'd be a lot of fact in, in there then in, in some of the histories which might have been written by the settlers at the time or by the police indeed, because as I say, they had their own agendas and their own, their own events to portray and their own events to hide. On the way back to Port Lincoln, the big smoke, I pull in at Sharinga, population six, to see Kim Callahan at home. I've got the flies spray out because we've got flies. He wants to show me his house and explain its connection to the massacre. This part here is the original four rooms of this house. The grandson of John Hamp that was murdered at Lake Yellen in 1849, he apparently built this house. So yeah, and it's a bit strange when Jack and them come up here the person that caused all this, well, massacre, his grandson built the house that I'm living in now. <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing. History is so close to the surface here, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty crazy the way it sort of worked out. You know, these walls could talk. In cities, the clues to the past are covered by concrete, roads and busyness. Out here in this lonely countryside, the past is very visible. The small, forlorn graves, place names like the hanging tree that hint at dark stories. Isolated homesteads now surrounded by cleared paddocks, but still starkly alone in a vast landscape. It's easy to understand why history is still a raw topic for both sides. There were a lot of white people speared and killed many more than I was aware of are coming to light. So perhaps a memorial to those white settlers who lost their lives also in the difficulties that occurred with white meeting black and not each other except understanding their principles or the customs Perhaps they should be acknowledged also. Whatever happened back then happened because two cultures clashed. 
you had an Aboriginal culture which strongly was that what's mine's everybody's and you had a white settlement that came in that said that what's mine is my own. Out of it become conflict. While it's an, an undesired result of two cultures getting together, but uh, uh, I think that's the fact of reality and uh, it not just happened at Ellison, it happened everywhere. You know, there's plenty of documented evidence about Aborigines clashing with whites and whites clashing with Aborigines. And sure, we're disappointed those things happened, but it had to happen to, for us to be able to enjoy what we've got now. There's been murders both sides, you know, um, but at the end of the day, when you sit down and crunch the numbers, you'll find that our mob come out worst off by, you know, hundreds, you know, in the end. And there's a pattern if you look at all the uh, massacre sites on the map, the new map that they're putting out. Um, as they push west, there's, there's more and more sites that have been recorded that um, there's been been murders and you'll find most of those places where there's been those um, murders um, and massacres is where it's, it's always been really good farming land and lots of water available and on balance you know it's been a pretty torrid time even since the 70s as you say trying to come to terms and put up monuments and decide to talk about what happened on balance is has it been a good thing or has it been a divisive thing in some ways well this is a good thing here in Alliston. i mean this is something that we've been fighting for for a long time so it's something that people around australia have been watching and, and, and now that the new york times has been involved it's opened it up for the for the international visitor you know so i've had 40 or 50 people call me about how how do we get to this stage you know with the local council here so people have been people are sitting out there looking at what's happened here and they're taking it on board and, and i'm sure you're going to hear a lot more about these sort of sites um yeah so you know i wish those other communities or those places that had the similar um uh, incidents happen i wish them the best of luck and i hope that their councils their local shires or whatever you call them out there come on board and support them because you know let's not hide what happened in the past let's put it out there let's not forget what happened let's commemorate it let's put up the monuments if need be and let's walk together in the, into the future i heard that it was you that finally swung the vote on the word massacre well, can you tell me that story well i just stood my ground and i wasn't going to change i mean it's been 180 70 years fighting for what we got here and you know these guys I shouldn't say this, but these guys only came here yesterday, you know. Um, give us one win at least, you know. They've got the country now, we've got nothing, you know. Um, they're making their lives out off our country. So give us one win out of it all. This isn't yet a happy ending for the Waterloo Bay Monument. After all, there's been a change of council, still the odd angry letter to the local paper, and mutterings about knocking the monument over the cliff. I don't think that the tensions have died because of it. I think, on the contrary, they've been brought out. And in a, in a sense, it's good that they've been brought out because they can now be addressed. The detail of what happened doesn't matter so much as the acknowledgement of what happened. And I think that's where the monument is critical to all the community, and not just the community, but to the visitors as well, to come and stand on that, on that point and say, look, yes, this is what happened here, we can understand, we can appreciate what happened, we can appreciate the horror that people went through. We've had those comments from people who said, oh, well, if you put that up there, we're going to push it over, and all those sort of idle comments that were made, and, and we've been there and done that, and uh, I, I believe that what's there is there, and it's uh, for a good purpose. Whether I necessarily believe it or not doesn't really matter. The important thing is that the Aboriginal people are happy with it, they felt um, alienated from the district, probably because of that story. And now that the monument's there, uh, they can move forward and, and take some sort of ownership in being a part of the district again, which uh, is a positive.
used to just miss Allison and go around the countryside, didn't ride around the rail track way road. And I always say, why don't we go past? No, 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 no. Mummel place, you know, that was called Mummel means evil place. For Vita Betts, having the monument on the cliffs at Waterloo Bay has been life changing. After the ceremony there on the side of the cliff, I know we all started to cry and come down with tears after the service there. And there were about four eagles flying over. So I reckon that must have been the spirits telling us we're okay. You know, it, it hurt, it hit me right straight in my heart. And to, to see the eagles fly over the cliff. And so what does that word, having that word massacre agreed on and put on the monument, what does that mean to you? It means a lot. It means tremendous. It means heaps. Deep down in my heart, you feel that you are giving the message through. I mean, our people didn't just went and fell off the cliffs themselves. Yeah, that word, massacre, is it's very painful, but it's got through. Waterloo Bay, that word massacre, was produced by Annie Hastwell, the supervising producer was Mike Ladd, and sound engineering was by Tom Henry. The music was by Peter Sculthorpe and William Barton. I'm Rebecca Huntley. I look forward to your company again next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.